Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Dalton. And I'm George. Welcome back, chaps, and welcome to the show, George. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Gary's busy recovering from FOSDEM or something, so we've got you to join us. But what else could we possibly talk to you about, George, except Linux distros with immutable file systems? That's kind of your thing, right? We could talk cloud governance if y'all want. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This might be a bit more interesting, I think, but maybe another time. So it's actually been almost exactly a year since we spoke on Linux Downtime about this, and quite a lot has changed, but also there's been loads of new immutable distros. So it kind of feels like vindication of your passion for this whole thing. But at the same time, it must be pretty hard to keep up with it all now. It started as a one-man a one-person project there. I was just going to maintain a list of awesome immutable resources and blogs and stuff. But now it's exploded. There's multiple new distros. I think all the major distros are looking in this direction. Pop OS unveiled the beginnings of their work in this area. And I've got interest in all of my projects as well. And stuff is happening. Vanilla OS is out. OpenSUSE Micro OS is pretty close, I think, to an initial release. I don't want to put releases in there on their roadmap for them. But uh, yeah, and they're all normal Linux distros. So you can sit in the channel and see how they're doing and, and figure it out yourself. It's been very exciting. So George, I saw a little while ago, you you said, mm, I think I'm going to try and come up with Ubuntu Blue or, or Silver Ubuntu or some kind of name. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of blossomed into something called Ublue, which I've been looking at the repos for today. So can you tell us a bit more about that? I wanted to move from Ubuntu to Silverblue, but it wasn't comfortable for me. So I kind of took the changes I liked in Ubuntu and did my toolbox thing and all that kind of stuff. And I knew right away that that was the model for me. And I knew that the certain kind of person was going to love it and embrace that. However, it became, you know how Linux nerds are like very picky about everything? (laughs) No. (laughs) It's hard to tell a story where it's like, well, I don't like Ubuntu. I use KDE or I use Mate or whatever. Silverblue had been around for a while, but Kinoite, the KDE one, took a while to get off the ground compared to the other one, right? That is the most exotic pronunciation of Kinoite I've ever heard. Is that what it is? Is it Kinoite? I believe so. Kinoite? Something like that. There's lots of people that were saying Kinoite, and I think Neil Gumper corrected them to Kinoite. Yeah. I mean, Silver Blue Plasma would have, would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there is an argument, you see this on like the Fedora forums, like, what do we name all these things? And, uh, I still kind of just want to call them Fedora, because if you think about it, you don't have a Corvette and then a Corvette without seatbelt. You just <laughs> buy a Corvette. Those are sort of a subscription feature. <laughs> but it became apparent that the lack of flexibility from what you get if you just get silver blue, right, can be a problem for people. So once, right before Christmas, they enabled the OCI container workflow, which we've been looking for, which allows us to modify Fedora CoreOS, silver blue, that kind of family of Fedora into almost anything that you want. So I kind of shifted from, I'm going to make a silver blue version of Ubuntu to I'm going to make a toolkit that will allow anybody to make their own version of an immutable OS based on Fedora with whatever you want. So now we have XFCE builds, we have Mate builds. Today we enabled a SteamOS-like build and we've got NVIDIA drivers working slipstream right on the image. So That was the big watershed moment where it was like, wait a minute, we can just provide NVIDIA drivers built into the image for people, give them the reliability that they want, and remove that kind of NVIDIA jank that you have when you're building a driver. 
So this kind of image-based approach, I think, has legs, and I think there's definitely interest there. But in addition, there's multiple ways to do this, right? So for me, the image-based approach is absolutely the solution for me. But that doesn't mean you can't appreciate what OpenSUSE is doing or what Vanilla OS is doing or those of you that are out there trying Nix and stuff like that, right? So I think having multiple implementations of a, an idea that we know we want to make the desktop stuff more reliable, but we want to give people the familiar tools that they're used to to help make that transition easier for them so it's more transparent. The village has to solve it. There's no one genius, right? So having a bunch of different attempts at it at this stage in the game, I think is absolutely the way to go. It's exciting. It's been a lot of late nights and I've kind of had to kick in the whole uh, work-life balance slash hobby thing. But it's exciting. Really smart people are starting to show up now and help us out with like GitHub actions and get the automation going. And I've long said that part of the reason of bringing this cloud technology to the desktop is to enable all new levels of contributors that typically don't contribute to a Linux desktop. So I brought an example for today's show is uh, I've got a friend, Brian Kettleson. He works in cloud and he had been looking for a project to work on. And because vanilla OS kind of picked the right tooling, he was able to dive in and help them out a lot, you know, and you could sit there in their discord and watch them figure out how to make their tools better. Traditionally, someone like Brian doesn't really have a place to get started in working in the Linux desktop, right? It's kind of this forgotten art that a lot of like Linux server nerds forgot about. That's part of the reason that I'm so very kind of adamant about the economic benefits of using as much of that cloud technology on the Linux desktop because it helps bring in people that do this stuff for a living and are professionals. Like I've had people helping us with our GitHub actions that do it as their day job. And that's just so much nicer when you're building infrastructure and you have existing tooling that you can leverage and take advantage of. And now these build pipelines and all the stuff that people are building is building my desktop for me. And that's really cool. You mentioned vanilla OS. That doesn't use... OS tree that uses AB root. And that got me thinking there's quite a few approaches to this same problem now, or the same idea, let's say. And that kind of has me worried that are we going down the typical Linux distribution, duplicate effort, fragmentation route already? So I have a Steam Deck and I have a Fedora Silverblue machine. And when I need stuff, I get it from FlatHub on both systems, right? And generally speaking, both of them, the image systems, the base OS kind of handles itself. Now, by default, Silverblue, you got to like configure it that way. Ideally, the actual method of how you're doing the immutability to the end user, they won't matter. Like on your Steam Deck, you get a little exclamation point, right? And it's like, you need to reboot at some point. And then you just do it. I think for generally stuff like this, multiple implementations isn't a bad idea. AB roots have been around for a really long time. It's a proven method. And you really can't fault anybody for going that way. OS tree takes a different approach. And that's kind of the model that the core OS folks are going to be shipping with. And eventually it's like part of OpenShift or whatever, whatever their, their huge enterprise plans are for that. I think the only people that have to care are going to be nerds on a Linux podcast talking about the differences. So you'll get AB root on vanilla. You'll get RAUC is what I think the method that's used on deck, RAUC, something like that. Ideally, that's, that's invisible to the user. Yeah, but you could argue that the difference between RPM and DEB is invisible to most users because they're just using a GUI package manager. But you could also argue that that is also potentially duplicated effort. I think they serve the same use case. I wouldn't call it duplicated effort. I think 
getting Debian packages of something, I think absolutely works for system administrators and things like that. And if you don't think I believe this now, let me just reiterate that I don't believe in traditional packages for end users anymore. Like, I think that ship has sailed. It's going to be a thing that people still use, obviously, right? Like, they're still very, very important because we've got to have packages to build the image. So I see it as more of an invisible thing that happens in the machinery that end users don't care about uh, or should not have to care about. So obviously, we're in the middle of a transition, right? So like, yeah, it sucks sometimes. You go into your software manager and then you click a thing and you're like, did it install the deb? The snap? Yeah, like that whole drop down just makes me cry. You know what I mean? But that's what we're doing right now. I don't do it in my images. That's the first thing I remove. <laughs> like I said, you know what? If you're going to build an image, right? And it's supposed to be your interpretation of what that's going to be. I decided, you know what? I'm going to see what a pure flat hub. This is like what my vision of silver blue with a little bit of Ubuntu flavor with exactly what I think a desktop operating system could look like. And the best part is you don't have to agree with any of it because you could just clone the repo and we have actions for you and stuff like that, that you could just generate your own builds. I don't think uh, every Linux user is going to be like, oh, I used to be able to customize my system. Now I got to figure out how to become a pipeline engineer, right? And that sucks. But I think what it does unlock is for people like me and the people that I've been hanging out with is gives them the tools and ability to make things that weren't really possible before. They're not distros either. This is what I think is unique is... They're custom builds, but they're not distros in the way, you know, if you were at work and you had, you had a Red Hat machine and you, you ran an Ansible playbook on it, you can have it do what you need to do, but you wouldn't call it a separate distribution. But in Linux and client, we have, we have this concept of separate distributions. Technically, I think I could call these distributions, but I don't want to do that because ain't nobody want to make distributions. You don't want me maintaining a kernel. <laughs> But you have really cool stuff in open source that you want to do. I saw this one, Hyperreal. Have you all seen this? It's like that tiling window manager, Wayland thing. It's like what all the kids are talking about. Anyway, it's pretty dope. <laughs> and we'll be able to make an image of that relatively easily without falling into the trap of, oh, I made my own distro. How do I do security updates, right? And all I want to do is like have like a cool desktop with a cool background to show my friends. Yeah, but... You could just do that with a PPA on Ubuntu. Yes, and you would have a broken computer. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxafterdark.net slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, 
and Late Night Linux. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. So I was looking through how the tooling for, for Ublue and the various spin-off images that are being created is going. And obviously at the moment, there's quite a lot of sort of installing Silverblue and then rebasing to the image, but with a view forward to having a dropdown where you say, no, I, I want the base image to be this that has been generated from GitHub. And then you can regenerate that image and then keep downloading it. And, and that we did a trial just over a year ago of Silverblue. And I tried to use Keen White. And uh, my first attempt, there was some bug where if you set the time zone to anything but US, it would just that. crash. Yeah. <laughs> and they've only just fixed it in the middle of last year, I think. I've just looked up the issue and it is fixed now. And they backported it to, I think, back to 36, Fedora 36. But one of the things that impressed me a lot was the rebasing mechanism anyway, and the idea that I could just flip from GNOME to Plasma. And once I'd got that image and, and done a rebase, it was incredibly quick and in incredibly smooth. And what you just said, George, about the PPAs, if I wanted to flip back what I'd just done, it was incredibly quick. And I, in fact, did that. That was the first thing I did. I was like, okay, now I'm in Plasma. Everything looks okay. Let's just go back to GNOME and see what that's like. And that was incredibly quick. And that part of it does sell me on it. It was rapid. It seemed clean. It seemed eminently reversible and a bit less involved than, say, some kind of snapshotting file system or whatever, where you might roll back to a snapshot that you've taken before that. It's, it, it just seemed very quick and very clean. And if you're then able to run the new improved Anaconda installer, if it's on Fedora, if they if they get that sorted out, because I'm not a fan of the current one. Yeah, it's a it's fortuitous timing that they're in the middle of rewriting the thing because they're they they plan on supporting custom images in their installer. Right now, I say install Silverblue rebase to this thing, and yeah, you know that's kind of annoying. I, I would like to find a way to just spit out ISOs, but if you know that the long term they're going to support it in the installer, then that works. But more to Joe's point also is. Yeah, you could add a PPI in your system and get that. But what I think is better and has been working well so far is you do add a PPA and then you build your custom thing. That's just happening in an automated system. In my case, it's GitHub. And then if all the tests and everything pass and the image is built, then it gets to your computer as opposed to, oh, there was an update today in the base system and the PPA hasn't caught up. You ever run into that? Yeah, or with an external repo like like wine. I was actually talking with a friend today just about that, how on the very latest install I did, I'm using Flatpak for Lutris and all of wine is separate and I can just pick at will. And I know that Proton does this in Steam a little bit, but the joy of knowing that I'm not going to get you have held packages, please run apt install F to find out what dependency hell well you've fallen down. Right. So we're using all the same stuff we're using before. It's just at the very end, we're stamping out an image and then that's what we're putting on our PCs. And I think that was very difficult to kind of explain to people when the only option was like the default silver blue. But I think especially as people start to make different images that do different stuff to solve their exact needs, we don't know what's possible. Someone took a Kinoite and then that specific MSI laptop needed like boot arguments or whatever for the NVIDIA driver, right? So they slipstream in the driver, those kernel arguments, and on the MSI Stealth 15 or whatever, it was working perfectly. And how many times have you like bought a laptop and then you're like, oh no, 
there's like one boot argument. Like I bought a used one the other day. I was like, oh, there's a boot argument that I have to do. Or like if you bought a framework, you find yourself in the thread, right? For the distro that you want on it in that forum saying, okay, I got to change these three things. I got to change these two things. And then eventually it'll get solved upstream. And then I'll just rebase to the vanilla one. If someone were to say, hey, the frameworks just came out. You got to change these three things. If you don't want to do it manually, rebase to this image. And then we'll slipstream all the fixes that you need. And then you can atomically, when the next version of Fedora, switch to that. And then you'll be good to go and you're on the official thing. That's a powerful method that we haven't had before. Before it was like, you got a Sputnik back in the old, old days. And it came with its own Dell PPA, right? And if you wanted to put normal distro on it, you had to like figure out what was in there. And then eventually they didn't need the PPA anymore. Well, what happened if you had the PPA set up? You had to be paying attention to be like, oh, I'm supposed to get rid of this PPA and then a new version. You know what I mean? That kind of life cycle distro stuff just becomes way easier when you can validate an image and then be able to rebase to different images based on the need of that either that hardware or if there's like a, a specific user requirement. This is making me feel really good as Ubuntu Touch was my alma mater, I guess, where I learned about all of this stuff because we had a separate image for every Android device because no one was going to make a Linux kernel that worked on multiple ARM devices and still hasn't. So you remember the heady days of CyanogenMod where you just go on there and it was just like this explosion of different images and stuff. Now, some people are going to be cynical about it, right? They're going to be like, it's just somebody playing around. But there was some good stuff back there, right? If you had that... And you had a way, because it's open source, you can verify to make sure no one's doing anything bad, right? Like you can verify our builds, you can check your signature, you can get pull and build the image on your own hardware if you want. If you gave people that kind of explosion of just custom images and ability to do what they want, and they could do it in a reliable way that lets you always rebase back to the default, it encourages ex experimentation, right? It encourages people to try new things. Because if I was on normal Ubuntu and someone's like, hey, there's a new window manager out, add this PPA, I've been around the block. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'll try it in a VM. But now I can rebase and get that guarantee that there's an atomic operation there, try the thing that I want, and then be able to freely switch. Now, it also surfaces bugs that weren't around before. We had a bug report where someone tried the XFCE build, but because they had to install Silverblue first, they had the GNOME flat packs installed and they didn't want that. But since that's a separate layer, you're able to cleanly and atomically clean those out without leaving any of the traditional package manager stuff around. Have you ever had to use the PPA purge tool that's in the archive? Like you have to do, you have to account for all these things that the local package manager is doing. People do need to do that stuff, but we're doing it in Git instead and waiting for a light to turn green when there's an image, then it ships to your machine. So I think that in particular is exciting for builders and for Linux users. I think eventually, indirectly, they'll end up with something that they might dig. So what do you say to naysayers to try and convince them? I'm thinking of the kind of person who is a real diehard Linux user who doesn't really like the cloud, is much more into on-prem and controlling everything. Mm, I wonder who this could be about. Who could it be? <laughs> mm, yeah, I wonder if I might be talking about failing here. But what do you say to people like that? Do you just say, well, good luck, enjoy your old school distro. It's all going this way eventually, so like it or lump it. One of the things I like about it, using common cloud tools, is on-prem is a thing still. 
before I learned how to do the GitHub Actions, I was building everything on my own actual infrastructure. I set up a, my own local registry. I was serving my OS images to myself. I had all the automation. I was running all the Podman stuff. I, I did the Linux thing. You know, I was writing my own little scripts and cron jobs and, and, and doing all of that kind of stuff. So that tooling is there, I think, for the on-prem stuff. So I, I, I'm not worried about people who are like, but I don't like cloud, you know. I'm more worried about people who aren't used to using your computer that way. If, if you've been using Linux for 20 years and you're good at it, when someone comes around and says, the Linux desktop is broken, you're going to be like, what are you talking about, man? My, you know, you, you read about it all the time. My Arch machine has been running for 10 years. I totally believe that. But for new people, like I think at some point you just have to recognize that things do change. And the state of the art when it comes to reliability and be able to consume in a way that we want, right? Like Linux as a desktop has reached its limit as far as nerds who are willing to learn how to do the stuff in order to get what we really want, which is enough users to convince Bungie to let me play Destiny on Linux or whatever mainstream thing you're looking at, your Linux distro isn't going away. You know, the first thing I would say, it's not a threat to you, but the current model for a lot of people, including myself, is just untenable. I think a lot of distributions have figured that out and they're building it. And the model is proven on cloud, it's proven on mobile, but can we get people the customization and the exact stuff that they want in order to feel comfortable? And I think especially like how you mentioned in the past year, those efforts have really accelerated across the board for everybody. Like how old is DistroBox, do we know? I want to say less than a year, right? Because yeah. when I tried Silverblue, it was December 2021, and I distinctly remember saying one of my favorite things of the whole experience was toolboxes, but I wish I could take them elsewhere. I wish I could run other distributions in them. And then it wasn't that long after that, up popped Luca. And I was like, wow, he's done the thing I just asked for, and it's amazing already, and it's just got better since then. What a great story, too. Even if you don't use any of this and you find out what DistroBox is and you see what people are doing with it and the problems that it can solve for you, that alone is like a high point in the, in the whole story. If you're listening to this and you're like, I don't, I'm not ready to you know, try any of this. This is a little bit too crazy for me or whatever. Just adding DistroBox. It's a great tool. It didn't even exist. And who knows what, what people are going to make. There's like 5,600 people right now in the vanilla OS Discord. They're making something that people are interested in. And the people that are comfortable with Linux and they think that that's fine. And I have to remind myself constantly, right? Especially people that make software is sometimes you're, you're not making things for yourself, you know, because you, you have that bias that you've grown up using Linux and all that stuff. I'm totally okay typing a rebase command in a terminal because it's similar to how we have to do Git at work, right? Some kid out there is going to make us a cool little graphical tool that gives you that drop down or gives you that experience. Like, I don't know what that looks like because I'm not a user experience person, but I know when something is cool. I think tools like DistroBox are the first wave of tools that are going to help people to make those transition easier. Well, we'd better wrap it up then because time's getting away from us. But thank you very much for joining us, George. We can put some links in the show notes to the stuff that you've been working on, George, and where to find you. Presumably Mastodon's where you're at these days. I am. Yeah, okay, I'll put a link to that then. So uh, we'll be back in two weeks then. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Dalton. And I've been George. See you later. <laughs>